And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Who is that guy sitting next to Putin? And could he make a difference in Putin's war on Ukraine? Brian Stewart is here to answer that. there, Peter Mansbridge in Toronto on this day. You know, in the old days, I hate that phrase, in the old days. I mean, everything's relative. They weren't that long ago. But in the days of the Soviet Union, so prior to, uh, well, 1989, 90, 91, prior to that, when you were trying to determine who held the real power in the Soviet Union, next to the general secretary, next to the the boss, the Andropovs and the Brezhnevs and the Khrushchevs and so on. The list goes on. Who held the power? Well, in those days, you used to determine that by watching very closely, whether it was the parades in Red Square or whether it was something in the Kremlin, was who had proximity to the leader, who was sitting next to them or standing next to them. And you watch that very carefully. The old Soviet watchers would say, oh, you know, so-and-so was there last Saturday and he was really close to Brezhnev, which must mean that that's the person, that's the next person who's going to have power. Well, nobody really sits next to our friend Mr. Putin these days. He's kind of all alone. But especially when it comes to military leaders, because he's been nothing but disappointed in how the military leadership has handled the situation in Ukraine. So it is with interest that in the last little while, the person who sits closest to Putin, and you see him in the picture today on our little advertisement, and promotion on Twitter and Instagram, etc. That's Valery Gerasimov. He's the new general in charge of the Soviet forces, or Soviet, the Russian forces. And he's an interesting figure. And we wanted to know more about him because there is this kind of begrudging respect for this guy from some of his military opponents, in other words, those on the other side. So why do they have that respect? What is it about this guy? And could he make a difference in what happens now, especially with all these rumors of a Russian offensive just around the corner? Well, how do we answer that question? We answer that question because it's Tuesday. We bring in Brian Stewart. And we talked to him about a number of different things that are this week's topics on the Russia-Ukraine war. And we're going to start off with a question we kind of talked about a little bit last week one day, and that's this corruption issue. But enough from me. Let's bring in Brian and uh, get his take on, as I said, a number of these things, not the least of which will be a discussion on our friend General Gerasimov. So let's bring him in. 
Here he is, this week's episode with Brian Stewart. So last week, Brian, I don't know whether you heard it, but Bruce and I were talking on Wednesday on the bridge about the corruption issue, and I was kind of wondering aloud, can um, can this be a problem for some of the coalition countries that are supporting Ukraine once they hear that that word corruption is up again? And it was up because Zelensky had fired, uh, you know, a, a number of top people in his government for alleged corruption. They didn't go into detail as to what the corruption was, but it raised that specter of what Ukraine used to be known for, which was deep corruption. And whether that's an issue now at a time when hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars are, are going into that country from, uh, from countries abroad, including Canada, and all kinds of armory. So what is your take on the corruption issue in Ukraine right now? Well, certainly it is a worry for the uh, Zelensky government that governments will be turned off and the publics will be turned off with stories like this. Uh, the reality is there is a lot of corruption in Ukraine. Uh, and the world has known that for many years. The media's had many stories about it. It's been various scandals. The uh, European Union, one of the reasons they long blocked Ukrainian entry into the U membership in the U European Union was basically the corruption. And they even warned uh, Ukraine they have to clean up their act. And some of the corruption scandals that are breaking now are hitting well up in government. Three deputy ministers, I think, have resigned. Uh, and Zelensky is on the warpath. He's really trying to clean it up because he's been fighting ever since he came into office to try and suppress the corruption aspect of Ukraine. But let's put it in perspective. Uh, Ukraine came out of the Soviet Union deeply corrupt. It was heavily involved with um, Russian businessmen, Russian oligarchs. Oligarchs grew out of the Ukrainian Soviet experience as, just as they did in, in Russia. They've been interconnected. Uh, it's been a severely corrupted uh, uh, country, basically judged the second worst in Europe by Transparency International. Now, having said that, I think we need, need to put a couple of things in perspective. And that is that, first of all, Ukraine is fighting hard against corruption. Maybe not as hard as it should be, but it is definitely making arrests. It's, it's firing officials. It's, it's just fired uh, five regional prosecutors, for instance. So it's hammering away at it. However, the reality of deep corruption, when it gets to involve oligarchs and organized crime, is incredibly difficult to get rid of. And I think the world is sympathetic in so much as it knows that to be the case. Um, it, there's a famous saying that came out of a, a German sociologist back in, I think it was 1911 or something, that there's an iron law of oligarchs. That is, oligarchs will reproduce themselves not only when the same group is in power, but even when an entirely new group takes control. They often make things worse. Olig corruption that is deep and involves organized crime at all levels of society is, is so, so difficult to get out to basically weed out because so many people are involved and so many people are in debt to the oligarchs. Where it's hits in Ukraine, it hits politics, police, courts, 
health services, industry, businesses, even universities. Uh, now, having said that, the money that is going in now for arms and arms that is going in is carefully supervised by the embassies to make sure it goes to the right place. And, and the allies are all kind of leaning on um, Ukraine to handle this properly. But we have to be clear about the fact and not hide the fact at all that Ukraine has a very serious organized crime, corruption problem that is going to take many, 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 many years to get rid of. And the fact that it goes on during war, well, organized crime always does go on during war. They're out to make profits, not to become patriots. You know, I remember when I was a kid growing up, one of the first TV series I used to watch in the 1950s was Sergeant Bilko. I don't know whether you remember it. You're old enough. You're that generation. But it was a hilarious uh, takeoff on the U.S. Army and the corruption within the Army by, uh, among others, Sergeant Bilko, who who ran a scheme and a scam where he was selling uh, uh, much of the the goods that was coming into the uh, into the Army. Now it's not a funny matter, but it was in in that particular show. Now. I guess the one thing you have to keep reminding yourself, and then we'll move on to another topic, but Zelensky was elected, a surprise election. The guy was, you know, a comedian, an actor. But his whole uh, platform was based on ending corruption, that it had to stop if if Ukraine was ever going to pull itself out of the mess it was in. And so he's, you know, past governments had made the same argument, and then as soon as they were in power... You know, they became just as corrupt as the previous ones. But it seems like Zelensky continues to take this very, very seriously to the point where, as you said, uh, even in a, in, a, in a war that at the moment he seems to be doing uh, not badly on, he is ensuring that or trying to ensure that the system doesn't continue to fall into this trap of corruption. So... Uh, one can only wish him luck on that, uh, and uh, we'll see how it turns out. Our, yeah, you wanted to make one last point before we move. Well, on? you know, you're you're absolutely right that uh, there's corruption in many areas. Uh, we have to remind ourselves that during the Second World War, for instance, there was massive uh, corruption involved in rationing. I think for a while, President Nixon, when he was a young lieutenant in the Navy, he was working with the Bureau of, uh, of uh, Rationing and policing rationing. He said he couldn't believe the number of corruption cases involving tires, rubber tires, which were rationed and things like that. So unfortunately, war does bring out a lot of the worst of this. So it's probably adding temptation to a lot of the already very corrupt. But no, I think we've covered it. I think the the fact that we realize and are open about the fact that they have a major corruption problem and it's going to take a long time to get rid of, but uh, it'll only be made an awful lot worse if Russia wins the war. All right, let's uh, let's move to the uh, the war part of the war uh, and the much much suggested offensive by the Russians to take uh, place, uh, you know, soon. You know, they, it, it's been talked of as the spring offensive, but it, it may be sooner than that. What is the latest uh, you're hearing, you're reading, and you're witnessing on this possibility of a Russian offensive? 
Well, a lot of people are scratching their heads saying, okay, what, what kind of offensive could it be in this day and age when uh, it's impossible for armies to mobilize large masses in one spot because of all the intelligence overhead and around where every movement is now recorded in open source uh, intelligence and the rest of it. You can't have a secret attack anymore. So the thought of the Russians you know, bringing together one giant fist with hundreds of tanks and hundreds of armored vehicles and tens of thousands of troops. It seems terribly unlikely, especially as the Ukrainians have this very strong, high precision um, artillery and rocket fire and the rest of it. They can zoom in on any masses and ammo dumps and command headquarters. So it looks to me like, and from what I'm hearing from the experts talking about it, is that it's more likely to be a many-pronged offensive that'll hit on the center of the Eastern Front, the Donbass region, essentially. The word is that Putin absolutely wants to get back Luhansk and Donetsk, and the, which will the full borders of it, and get the whole of the Donbass. Ukraine still holds a good part of it under his control. The army are telling him, uh, so according to uh, what they're hearing, a campaign of six to nine months, which will give you some indication of how long that ferocious fight could be, after which they might fall back on a defensive position and wait for the Ukrainians to basically wear themselves out against uh, Russian defenses. So that's the word as now. I, I still find it terribly difficult to see how the Russians can pull off a ma major offensive in one area. So I would think it would come in three areas, three or four areas along that center front uh, in the east. The one big surprise I think that uh, people aren't taking into account enough, and that is the Russian Air Force, which is very, very strong, has been held back in this war because of a, a fear of losses to uh, uh, Ukrainian fire. And uh, I, there's an indication the Russians are husbanding the very best of their their attack aircraft and bombers and the rest of it uh, to come in once an offensive, the five prong or two prong offensive is underway. Suddenly, out of uh, out of the mist, will come masses of the Russian Air Force, hundreds of planes coming in on ground attack missions. And it's very, very hard for any army, however good, to stand up against a situation where they've lost control of the sky overhead. Even the best armies tend to buckle in that situation. So I think there's a lot of worry going on amongst allies and amongst the Ukrainians. How can we possibly protect that way, that frontline area uh, sufficiently against a sudden emergence of um, uh, the Russian Air Force en masse and real strength. And that's also why you're hearing more urgent calls for uh, fighter planes from the West to be sent over to to uh, Ukraine, just given to Ukraine, right? so that it can attack and also you know defend the lines, but also go in and attack a Russian mobilization. And why they're also calling now for more uh, the longest range artillery uh, systems so they can smash away at gathering places for the Russians. No, I would watch the air. Air is a dangerous area. You know, I, I, I found this past, I don't know, two months fascinating because for the period uh, up until the holidays and the early part of January, the ask from Ukraine on almost a daily basis was, 
tanks. We need your tanks. You've got to give us those Leopard 2s. Germany's got to buckle. They've got to allow other countries to give us their Leopard 2s and the British to give us their tanks and so on and so forth. Um, And then suddenly, the tanks were made available last week, just as you had predicted. Um, You know, for a couple of weeks now, that was going to happen. But then suddenly this week, you know, and I'm up at like five in the morning and I turn on uh, the, the news and what do I hear? Ukraine is asking for fighter planes and missiles. So, you know, they got their tanks. So let's move on. Get us the planes. Get us the missiles. What is the likelihood of uh, the allied countries saying, OK, we gave you tanks and now we're going to give you jet fighters and we're going to give you missiles? So you can. I think the, certainly, US. certainly, the likelihood is is increasing, but it's we're not there yet. I mean, it would be the logical thing to go. I mean, listen, if you send in tanks, if you send in these very precise artillery systems, if you send in the Patriot missiles and the rest of it, what's the difference from sending in, say, some F 16s American fighter planes to intercept Russian fighters, but also to launch ground attack uh, missions against the Russian lines? Uh, it really doesn't seem to be much of a difference. But of course, in the West, there's a worry of escalating the war. Um, You know, the word seems to be going around the Pentagon, though, that America is getting closer and closer to saying yes. But we have to again keep in mind, they've got the tanks, the offer of the tanks. They're not going to see the tanks. Ukraine until late spring, probably. They're not going to see them in any, you know, effective mass until you know several months away, maybe even three solid months away. If a decision is made in the next couple of weeks, possibly that fighter planes should be given to Ukraine, either you, uh, the American ones or maybe European, like the Swedish Gripen. Um, it will take months for those to be made ready, to be got into Ukraine, to have fighter pilots trained on them, uh, to be ready to go into full action. It takes a long time to train a fighter pilot, as you can imagine. Um, it's extraordinarily difficult. So a lot of this, you know, Western giving is giving, but boy, are they ever going out on the razor's edge in, in, in terms of how long they can delay. Because if the time comes, historically, if we could look ahead and see a worst case scenario where the Russian offensive does work and they do break through Ukrainian lines and they do take suddenly air superiority all along eastern Ukraine and there's a disaster where the Ukrainian army is being cast back and having to go into major retreat. Can you imagine the storm of blame that's going to come down on the Germans and the Americans and the allies, all the allies for having delayed so long to send the weapons that were needed? Well, on the on the other side of the coin, is it a stretch to say that the allied countries are now contributing to the the building of one of the most one of the largest, most effective fighting forces on the planet? Well, they they certainly have, but it was a, it was a, an effective fighting force before the Russians invaded. Uh, everybody in the world virtually missed that point, but they were they had spent eight years Ukrainians getting their military up to a really impressive uh, amount. 
but we're into it. We said many months ago, Peter. This is an industrial scale war. It is 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 a World War II type of confrontation between very major masses of military in a conventional sense that we haven't seen in the continent since 1945, and uh, it's it's bound to get either higher or uh, the Ukraine will fight on with what it has. And you, I just don't see how that's going to turn out. They're all, they do ne- desperately going to need more ammunition. The Russians need more ammunition too. Both sides do. Um, the, the balance will keep going back and forth. If if the Russian, if the Ukrainians get more weaponry, the Russians will feel obliged to send in more of their Su-30s and and thirty-five fighter planes and bombers and the rest of it. So. Um, I don't know how to answer that except to say this is a very major war. It's awful. It's ugly. It's dangerous. It has to come to an end, but it's not going to come to an end until both sides figure out a way in which they're ready to negotiate. Has has Canada got anything more to offer? I mean, you know, we're scratching together a couple of tanks where we've we've done what we can on, uh, you know, uh, artillery pieces, light armored vehicles, um, you know, weaponry of various kinds. Uh, I don't think we have any planes. We've barely got enough to, to fulfill our own needs. Um, and we won't be seeing a replacement plane for four or five years. Right. Maybe helicopters. I don't know. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any talk of, of Canada coughing up fighter planes or no, missiles no. or anything like that. I think that it's quite possible Canada will send more tanks. I mean, four is the beginning. All the countries are made an opening bid, say, an opening gambit. We'll send 14, and then a month later, they send another 10, and then another five. And it's hard to know. I know Canada is very hard-pressed probably to get even four in good shape over there. But, um, yeah, I think you could add another or five, perhaps, and that would be it. Uh, some more armored vehicles uh, that they're manufactured here, and they can come out fairly fast. Uh, some of this stuff can be delivered fairly quickly, too. The large transport planes that exist now that didn't really exist 20, 30 years ago can carry one whole tank over at a time or several armored cars over at a time. So you could get a more rushed buildup than there we're seeing at the moment. It doesn't seem necessary at the moment because the Russians aren't on the verge of breaking through. But if things got really uh, dangerous, uh, definitely. Uh, there would be more rushing over and flying of Abrams tanks, say, from the United States over. You know, one of the, the, the largest cargo aircraft in the world is a is a Russian-built one, right? One of the yeah. Antonov. I think the biggest was the Ukrainian one that was got blown up. Well, there <laughs> was the first, the, I think the first day of the war. There's one of them sitting out at the, uh, the Antonov, sitting out at the at Pearson Airport in Toronto. It's still there. It was impounded when uh, when this war started. That's the um, Russian one, yeah. The yeah. Russian one, but there, there's a, an Antonov that flies in fairly regularly into—is uh, it Yellowknife or Whitehorse? One of those things, where they bring in various parts of various um, machinery. They're chartered to bring in. I think there was just a South Korean helicopter in that was being winter tested for uh, winter weather, and they were doing it out of either Yellowknife or Whitehorse. I can't remember which, uh, but it was an Antonov that brought it in. Now I, I, I don't think I think it works for a an international uh, cargo company as opposed to a Russian one. Um, Okay, 
moving on. Um, well, first of all, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back. And uh, I want to talk to you about this guy, uh, Gerasimov, the new uh, Russian general. Well, he's not a new general, but he's, he's new in the role, and he's getting a lot of attention. You're going to tell us why that is. Uh, but first, this quick break. Welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge, the Tuesday episode. Brian Stewart's with us. We're talking about all things Ukraine slash Russia slash war and the various developments. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, we've been hearing about this guy for the last couple of weeks, General Valery Gerasimov, a Russian general. And why is that name important? Gerasimov, yes. Well, he's almost a mythical figure in the, in the West. Uh, he's been the Russian chief of staff for 10 years. Uh, he's a very uh, close to Putin. He's one of the uh, very cl- close memberships around Putin. But what makes him separate is that you know he's taking over now the command of the war. Before, it was in the hands of others who got fired one after the other. Now, he's the man in charge. Uh, he's an intriguing character because, first of all, he's he's very learned, very uh, kind of illiterate. He's a, He's been through all the top military uh, colleges in Russia that are highly regarded uh, in many areas. And he's a thoughtful man. He's He's a theorist and a strategist and the rest of it. Um, Ten years ago, next month exactly, he wrote an essay, uh, the very scientific-scaled essay um, on what to do about science and war. And it was immediately grasped in the West as the Gerasimov's doctrine uh, of hybrid war. What he was doing basically was saying that war is becoming much more fluid and flexible and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the right words, using all forms of unconventional wars, uh, you know, hacking, electronic hacking, fake news, information battles, propaganda, proxy armies, all of that. Russia has to think more along the lines of of, of what's where that is taking us, rather than just the old lines of the big massed attacks and deep penetration of the traditional Soviet and, and Russian armies combined. Now, he didn't actually say all that stuff. I mean, in part, he was actually describing what he was finding the Americans and their allies were up to, uh, you know, using peace movements per, and, and rather humanitarian groups to get a foothold in places, using information wars to win supporters, all that. That kind of stuff. He wanted more of that. But he began began to become the most watched Russian general because he thought he was thought to be very cerebral, very bright. And in fact, he he did try and bring in a lot of reforms in Russia. As I we said with Ukraine, when you try and reform a corrupt country, it is extremely hard to do. And he's found out, as Putin has, that reforming the Russian military is much harder than it seems on paper. So Gerasimov 
was one of the designers of the Russians going into Syria. He, he actually, the Crimea takeover was his design. That was a success. And uh, I think he's hanging around his neck the fact that he largely designed the Ukrainian invasion, which was certainly a very far thing from a success, was actually a, a disaster. So he's, he, he puzzles people. He's brilliant on one hand, yet how could he have put together with others that monstrosity of a strategic plan to invade Ukraine that got everything wrong? Almost everything they could do wrong, they did do wrong. So that's baffled people. Well, now he's the man and he's the guy in charge of the military uh, and the war overall. And he's determined to fix that war. And what many people are thinking, oh, oh this is a bad sign because he's he's fighting to, to save not only Russia's reputation, but his own personal reputation. This is a man who's going to be in for a long, hard war and will use every means possible. Uh, oddly enough, he had, he's quite well, I wouldn't say liked, but he was respected by a lot of Western generals who found that he's basically a, a fairly truthful man. He's easy to talk to. Uh, the American Pentagon leader talks to him every now and then on the phone, even still. He can he seems rational, clear-headed, and that's a good sign. The other sign is that he uh, he's a tough Russian general, and he wants to get this war won in the win column and not a not a defeat, which may make it harder in the long run. But everybody's watching Gerasimov very carefully. I love the, um, I love you telling that story because it it reminds me of something you and I have talked about many times over the years, and that was how uh, Montgomery, the British general, would sit in his trailer looking at the picture of Rommel hanging on the wall trying to imagine what his nemesis would be doing and how he would be acting on the battlefield. Yes, absolutely. And uh, a lot of generals in the West now, and certainly in Ukraine, are probably looking at photos of Gerasimov and trying to divine what on earth is he thinking in terms of this this great offensive? What is he thinking in terms of meeting our offensive, which may be the more important question to them right now? When the Ukrainians finally put together their large uh, offensive, how is Gerasimov, who's already been pushing the defensive very strongly, how's he going to reply? Counterattack or go deeply, deeply on the defensive? And also, you know, he'll be the one talking to Putin probably most often about the war and the reality of the war. If he is his own, if he's honest with Putin, he may be giving him a lot more of the fair goods than he's been getting to date. Uh, we'll have to see. We just we won't know. We won't know until history's written many years from now. But it's hope. It's hopeful on one hand that he'll be sensible, uh, you know, and that he'll he'll see reality. But it's feared on the other hand that his personal reputation is now so tied up in this. And generals do get their personal reputations tied up in wars and battles. Think General MacArthur for the Americans or Montgomery for the British. Uh, so he could make it uh, even tougher to get reality through to Putin. You know, I uh, 
I can remember touring, I can't remember whether I was with you or not, but going through the Imperial War Museum in London, which is well worth the stop if you if you have any, uh, you know, ties to, uh, you know, history in terms of various conflicts around the world. But the Imperial War Museum in London is quite something. But they had at one time, they had the, the trailer, perhaps they still do. It's kind of like a caravan trailer that uh, carried, that brought Montgomery through the uh, North African deserts, and they they had it basically set up the way he had it set up, including that that frame picture of uh, uh, Rommel on one of the walls. Uh, anyway, last we, we were almost out of time as we ramble on about our past uh, experiences on stories like this, but um, give me a sense of where we are on the on the Canadian tally, where, uh, in, in terms of what we've put into this conflict in, uh, in Ukraine, in terms of money and machinery, where are we on that? Well, it's, it's in many ways, a very impressive figure. Many people may not think so when they look at some of the small armaments we've sent over the small amounts, but in overall support with development assistance, with military aid, with humanitarian aid, it is very significant. In fact, Canada amongst nations is either in the top four or the top three. Uh, it's that high. Certainly it's in the top five. It comes after the US, UK, for Germany, and then comes Canada. Um, and Canada is basically given in one form or another. That's military, that's development assistance, that's humanitarian aid, uh, and that's uh, working to get loans for Ukraine and the rest of it. Five billion dollars. That's the official tally now of the government. It may well be a, a bit above that already. But five billion dollars, just in comparison, Peter, how's this? Five billion in one year, not even one year fully yet to Ukraine. Over 13 years in Afghanistan, uh, Canada basically spent 18 billion. So we've spent almost a quarter of what we did in the entire Afghanistan mission in one year already in Ukraine, which gives some indication of just how dedicated the Canadian government really has been. Um, and, you know, it has a big Ukrainian population here, of course. It has had a long historical tie to Ukraine, and it has been working with Ukraine for a decade. But the last year has just been a kind of frenzy of activity. And I would just add one other thing, that not all of what Canada does is seen above uh, board. It does a lot of work with the IMF, World Bank, and the rest of it, you know, arranging for backing up loan guarantees and the rest of it to Ukraine. So we're a very big kind of a, a lobbyist for Ukraine and international agencies around the world. And all that's very much impre- uh, uh, appreciated by Ukraine, uh, the Canadian lobbying efforts as well. Okay, we'll leave it at that for this weekend, giving us lots to think about on a number of fronts. As we, uh, you know, every week we <laughs> when we chat, or usually on the weekend previous to to recording this, we, we say, well, I'm not sure there's really, you know, a lot of new stuff here yet. <laughs> and then every week there's a lot of new stuff. It's Always a, new, yeah. It is a remarkable story. All right, Brian, thank you. We'll talk to you again in a week. Okay, Peter, thanks a lot. Brian Stewart with us. Uh, as he has been uh, for most days, or most weeks, in a year now. To come to think of it, the calendar flips over to February tomorrow, and then within a couple of weeks, we're at the first anniversary of the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
Now, a lot of programs, I'm sure, will be planning special anniversary programs um, to mark that date. I guess it'll be February 24th. Uh, we're going to jump the gun a little bit on on that and try and get in a week or so earlier uh, with Brian and and have a have a discussion around some of the key points of uh, this past year and what they've said uh, to us about the state of uh, conflict in our world, about the state of the situation, obviously in in Ukraine, uh, some of the markers that we've witnessed over this past year. So uh, we'll do that and try and uh, air it a, a week or so before the anniversary, before the onslaught of anniversary shows that you are uh, bound to see, hear, and read in the uh, in the days ahead. Okay, we um, we actually have a few minutes left for some of uh, some of this week's end bits. Got a couple of good ones here to kind of lighten the tone a little bit. This one uh, came out of Philadelphia in the last couple of days, and (laughs) I found it, you know, it's one of those stories that tells us something about our times, especially in the post-COVID times, if we can can hazard the uh, possibility of saying post-COVID. I know COVID is not over, and I keep getting mail from doctors saying it's not over, and it's not over. But we are we're in a much different tone and a much different mood than we were a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Three years ago, we were just about to enter the, uh, you know, for many of us, the worst time of our lives. Anyway, this story out of Philadelphia. One of the things that COVID cost Philadelphia was its use of public pools, swimming pools. And so kids who had you know, it longed for the summer months when they could, you know, get to a public pool and swim with their pals, uh, weren't able to because the pools were closed. They're slowly opening up now. There's one problem. Guess what it is? If you have a pool, you need two things. You need water and you need lifeguards. Well, they got the water. They don't have the lifeguards. So they're actually advertising for those who would like to be lifeguards, even if they can't swim. (laughs) Can Can you believe that? You want to be a lifeguard? You want to look like Baywatch? Well, you don't even have to swim. Well, you don't have to swim now, but you have to commit to taking swimming lessons between now and when the pool opens. The pool is open. So they're very interested. If you would uh, like to register for a swim course, <laughs> it just—I I love it. It's, it just sounds funny. Um, it's not a bad gig, you know. If you're a student who can swim and want to be a lifeguard, or if you're a student who's willing to learn how to swim in the next couple of months. Pay starts at 16 bucks an hour. And the schedule is generally 35 hours a week. And uh, presumably you get a free whistle out of the deal too, so it's not bad. Um, okay. 
<laughs> Here's another one. Want to make a million bucks? Want to win a million dollars? A million dollars. Well, it's not that hard. At least it doesn't sound that hard. Have you heard of Chicken of the Sea? You know, they make a number of products, including tuna, right? So tins of Chicken of the Sea. If you know anything about Chicken of the Sea, if you've ever seen a can of Chicken of the Sea, you look on it, what do you see? You see a mermaid. So here's the deal. Chicken of the Sea whose mermaid mascot is prominently displayed on its cans and packets of seafood products, is offering a life-changing grand prize to those who can show that mere people, mermaids, mere people, are real. What do you think of that? Think you can get out there and find a real mermaid? Now, there's all kinds of conditions placed on this. According to the, uh, the story I'm reading here, it's on fox.com. Just shows you how widespread my search for knowledge, my search for news is that I've gone to fox.com to find this story. The potential winner would not only have to submit video evidence, they'd also have to set up an interview between the mermaid and the company's mermaid expert. Well, chicken of the sea, they're not just some rinky-dink operation. They have a mermaid expert on their staff. All official sweepstakes rules also need to be followed, and all submissions must be sent in by... The end of February, so you've got a month to find a mermaid and interview them. As the rules stipulate, for avoidance of doubt, aquatic animals, and then they list all the possible aquatic animals, manatee, fish, lobsters, dolphins, jellyfish, sharks, sea turtles, starfish, crabs, octopuses. Octopuses? I thought it was octopi. Apparently not. Whales, seahorses, squid, swordfish, shrimp, killer whales, manta rays, otters, and oysters, etc., are not mermaids. For further avoidance of doubt, mythical oceanic lake, river, and or water-dwelling creatures, i.e. sirens, ocean-dwelling spirits, ghosts, blue men, kelpies, selkies, seawalls, deities of myth and or legend. <laughs> Boy, they, they ruled just about everything out, right? you got to find a real mermaid. But if you do, million bucks. I don't know. It's almost worth taking the month off, right? Just to go out there and look for a mermaid. Those who believe gallivanting off to pursue mermaids may be too much a time suck. Boy, this is real fox talk, right? Can instead send in a mermaid-themed image or video to Chicken of the Sea for the chance of winning just 2500 bucks. Okay, there you go. 
The bridge is always looking for opportunities for you. And here we've had two. You can be a lifeguard in Philadelphia and you don't even have to swim. Or you can go out and find a mermaid and win a million bucks. I'd say the bridge is a public service. And just to think, you get it for free. This service goes to you for nothing. You can watch it on your YouTube channel. You can listen to it on SiriusXM, or you can download it as a podcast for nothing. And yet I find jobs for you. Look at that. Okay. He's flipping out, gang. Let's get him off the air. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Tomorrow, it's Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with Bruce Anderson. And you can watch that one on our YouTube channel because it's Wednesday's show. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.